Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 14 marks the beginning of a, a new prolonged section in the book of Romans about how Christians are to relate to one another when they legitimately disagree. This section runs through the end of chapter 15, or at least through verse 13 of chapter 15. And you might even say that this has been one of the main goals of Paul's letter, is to be able to arrive at this place, that this is what he's been driving at this whole time. All that prolonged, detailed discussion about sin and righteousness and faith and justification and union with Christ and sanctification and glorification and election, all of it has been leading up to this portion where he's aiming all of that doctrine very directly at relationships within the church. This is where we most clearly see the theme of this two-year sermon series that we've called Gospel Unity Propels Mission. Maybe you've noticed that the whole book of Romans keeps bouncing back and forth between these two different groups of Christians. There are those who've come to faith in Jesus as a fulfillment of the Jewish faith, and then there's those who have come to faith in Jesus as non-Jews or as Gentiles, the Greeks. Those two categories come up consistently, and Paul consistently has instructed these Christians how to rightly appreciate and honor one another within those two different groups with surgical precision throughout this letter. To the Jews, he says, God always intended to include these Gentiles into this one new united people. To the Gentiles, he says, 
Don't be proud because you think that you've replaced the Jews as God's people. And so Paul's leveling the playing ground between them and encouraging them to show honor to one another as God's one united people. And that concept comes to its fullest expression here in this section. This is a relational section of this book, as we've already noted, started in chapter 12. And so Paul is tackling, in this instance, the complex topics of how we ought to practice our faith together in light of the gospel. How does that right doctrine that Paul is so fervently teaching and defending and promoting, how does that inform healthy relationships? In some ways, this is a test to see if his Roman audience has been paying attention to the first 11 chapters of Romans. If you affirm the doctrines of the gospel, then you better embrace a culture that is shaped by that same gospel. Doctrinal purity and selfless love are a package deal for the Christian. It is not an either or. Here's the deal. Because we live in a world that is still impacted by sin and the fall, some divisions are regrettably necessary. Other divisions, however, are unhealthy and destructive. Recognizing the difference between those two categories of necessary and unnecessary divisions requires maturity and discernment and charity and grace and humility and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. My prayer as we dive into this section of God's word is that he, by his Holy Spirit, would use it to continue to mold this church into a beautiful community of holiness and love for the sake of his glory and for the sake of the mission to which he's called us. The big idea for this morning's sermon is this. You aren't Lord over your Christian siblings. Jesus is. You aren't Lord over your Christian siblings. Jesus is. And I've got this broken down into four distinct sections. First, do not condemn those God has welcomed. See it in verses 1 through 4. Second, Christians can get along without agreeing at every point. Verses 5 through 6. Third, Jesus earned the right to reign over each of his people, seven to nine. And then fourth, God is the final judge to whom we are each accountable. That's the roadmap that we'll be tackling this text through this morning. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and for this community that does love your truth, uh, that is zealous for good doctrine and for, for good teaching. Father, we love this community too for its zealousness for love. Father, would you continue to build this church up in in love for one another, that we might honor one another, that we might count one another uh, as as more important than ourselves, and the way that you have modeled for us in Christ for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. First, do not condemn those God has welcomed. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4, and I'll just read those verses back into our hearing one more time for us. Starting in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who despises, not, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." So just before this, in the passage that we covered last Sunday, we're told not to make provisions for the flesh, not to engage in those works of darkness, to walk properly as in the daytime, so not pursuing gluttony or sexual immorality. And then he ends there with quarreling and jealousy. And so now Paul is sort of stopping there and hovering over that concept, quarreling within the church. He's getting into some more specific details about what that means. So apparently there was some conflict within the Christians here in Rome. Some individuals whom Paul describes as weak in the faith. I don't know that that's a label that they gave themselves. Others there that he calls strong, and he calls them strong in chapter 15, verse 1, when he's speaking of the same group. So we have there the, the weak in faith, and then those who have a comparatively stronger faith. What was weak about the faith or belief of some of these individuals to whom he is writing. Well, they had set some unnecessary restrictions around what they could eat or what holy days they were required to observe. We might say that they set unnecessary restrictions on their diet and on their days. Why those two things? Why diet and days? Well, those two issues, food restrictions and observing holy days, were identity markers for Jewish people. And this is how they distinguished themselves as Jews apart from the nations. So they had been culturally trained to do this over hundreds of years, to be careful about these things, careful with what you eat, careful with your dietary restrictions, observing these uh, festival days, the holy days. They showed their devotion to the Lord by keeping kosher food regulations, and by observing Sabbath days and those holy festivals. So as for the meat, they couldn't be sure how that meat was prepared. So they didn't know if it was kosher or not. Maybe it was even used in a pagan ritual as a sacrifice made to an idol. And they believed their faith, they believed that it would be an offense to God to eat that meat. And so they skipped it altogether, and they went with the veggies as we see in verse 2. As for the days... Some were still observing the Sabbath and the festival days that were part of that Jewish cultural tradition. We see that in verse 5, just outside of this passage. And so they believed, they faithed, this is the way that they understood it, that in order to be faithful, they needed to continue to practice those same things that had marked them out as God's people in the past. And if you look down to verse 21, which is not in our text this morning, but if you look down to verse 21, apparently some of them might have taken offense to the concept of drinking wine too. Now Paul himself is convinced about these issues. He is convinced that those identity markers that existed under the old covenant for Israel no longer apply to the new covenant in Christ. He's not confused about that. He includes himself in the strong group. You can see that in chapter 15 verse 1. So he's, he's, he's not in agreement with those with the weaker faith. But apparently some of the other Christians from a Jewish background were not convinced of this the way that Paul was, and so they kept doing these things anyways just in case. 
we'll continue to observe these diet and day restrictions just in case. And so the division was probably primarily between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's stereotypically speaking, probably not true across the board. But that shouldn't be much of a surprise, right? When we think through the book of Romans as we've covered it so far, this message that goes out to the Jews and the Gentiles together is a common theme that keeps coming up over and over again in, in this letter. And Paul's message to everyone involved, every party involved, is this. Don't let this disagreement become an opportunity for disunity. Don't quarrel about these things. Now, this conflict probably is not hard to imagine, uh, theoretically. So the, the weak in faith, they believed that they were being more faithful by observing these dietary and day restrictions. And so they would have been tempted to pass judgment on anyone who didn't act like them. Why aren't you being as holy as I am? And they might have said something like, I just can't imagine how anyone would consider himself a Christian and not observe the Sabbath. And the ones who didn't observe those days and dietary restrictions would have been tempted to despise the ones who did. They might have said something like, I don't understand why you, like if you truly understood the gospel, you would wake up and smell the bacon. I want you to notice something here. This is really important. Look at verse 1 in chapter 14. Look at verse 1. The strong are instructed to welcome the weak in faith and not to quarrel over opinions, as the ESV has it. Not to try to convince them that they are wrong about these disputable matters. Other translations call these opinions disputable matters. So, Welcome them, but don't invite them in so that you can sort of lay into them for being so ignorant. Don't push them or ridicule them about their convictions. This is true whether or not they're stronger or weaker in their convictions than you. But rather, welcome them, and as Paul has told us previously in chapter 12, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Love and respect them. Why? Well, he grounds it in verse 3. You can circle this if you'd like. Verse 3, for God has welcomed him. For God has welcomed him. All right, so track with me now. How does God welcome people? By grace alone, through faith alone. This is what Paul has been laboring to explain to us in the last chapters, right? Very clearly in chapters 3, 4, and 5. So if God has welcomed someone on the condition of repentance and faith, he or she is a Christian. God has welcomed them. They're part of the family. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so if that's true, well, then how could you condemn them? And if there's no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus, how are you condemning them? How would you be able to judge someone as an unbeliever if God has welcomed him and adopted him into his family? The conduct in question here about the days and the diet aren't sinful. They're not violating any biblical or moral norms. No one believes in justification by vegetarianism. This is not what they're trying to argue for here. And so it's not evidence that they're not genuine Christians. And we can tell this in verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of one another? So she's going to be responsible to God and not to you. And if God has welcomed her, she will stand in the final judgment. She won't be condemned 
because the Lord himself will establish her in the final judgment. And all things will work out to the good. Remember chapter, the end of chapter 8, right? All these things are still true. Her justification is not contingent upon whether or not she agrees with you on disputable matters. This is hard for us to take in. This is difficult because we want others to immediately embrace the truth that we sometimes see so clearly. I know this is a temptation for myself. Uh, Even though it takes me years to come to the conclusions that I've arrived at, sometimes I expect others to agree with my convictions in an instant, just right now. What's so hard about this? It's It's so clear. But growth and maturity cannot be microwaved. It's just not how it works. Helpful to keep in mind in parenting as much as any other kind of discipleship. Do you notice how we're we're encouraged, commanded, to prioritize preserving the relationship instead of pressuring someone to change their mind about a a legitimate disagreement? The relationship is primary in this consideration. This does not mean that you need to pretend someone that you disagree with is correct. That is not at all what Paul is saying, but it does mean that you're not supposed to condemn that brother or sister for not agreeing with you. So eating meat is not a sin, not eating meat, not a sin, but harassing someone about whether or not they eat the meat actually is a sin. Condemning someone for not obeying your convictions on disputable matters is wrong. So there's two different ways to think about legalism. Often we think of the vertical sort of legalism that Paul corrects earlier in the book of Romans. That sort of legalism tries to establish our own righteousness by obedience to the law, not accepting the righteousness of God that is a gift to be received by faith. We might call that a vertical legalism, trying to earn a right standing before God. But there's another kind of legalism that's more horizontal. When we hold others accountable to our convictions about issues that aren't central to the gospel, we've slipped into that sort of horizontal legalism. We've tried to kick Jesus off the judgment seat and try to take his place. This probably has never happened to you with meat. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone scoffing at us for eating bacon and our green beans on wonderful Wednesdays. But I'm willing to bet this has played out in some other way for you at some point in your Christian life. Maybe you've had someone condemn you for watching movies, or for playing cards, or for having a beard, or for not wearing a certain style of clothes, or for drinking alcohol, or having tattoos, or listening to certain musical genres, for not homeschooling, for smoking, Here's what we need to be careful about. It's possible that some of those things would be a sin for you. If your faith doesn't allow you the freedom to do those things, you should not do them, Paul says. Be fully convinced in your own mind. But when you start to obligate someone else to obey your convictions, only you've stumbled into legalism. You're judging someone else in ways that are more narrow than God is himself. And I promise you're not more holy than God. I picked up this story in a biography of the theologian R.C. Sproul, Stephen Nichols wrote. When he was younger, R.C. Sproul smoked, and he was on faculty at a conservative seminary in the 1960s. And one day he's in the office waiting for an appointment to meet with the dean, 
And the, the dean's secretary says to him, uh, Dr. Sproul, it smells as if you've been around someone who's been smoking. And he says, indeed I have. It is I. <laughs> and she said back, it's getting so that you can't tell who's a real Christian anymore. And so R.C. Sproul replied, well, I'm a theologian, and so I can tell you that a real Christian is someone who loves Jesus. You know, some of our convictions might come out of a particular Christian culture or tradition and not from Scripture. It's okay to have conviction about these things, but we can't raise them to be on par with Scripture in order to bind someone else's convictions or conscience. That's basically what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is not a fan of this. We don't want to accidentally be Pharisees. That, that legalism, or even the quarrelsome that escorts it into the church, is not a way to achieve unity. Unless you want to build a culture that's united in its divisiveness, which I don't. We need to leave room for others to be fully convinced in their own minds on some issues. Second, Christians can get along without agreeing at every point. Verses 5 through 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So we can see evidence here even in these verses that the opinions and disputable matters, these are discussions that are happening within the Christian community. These are genuine Christians, earnest Christians who are disagreeing here. Some think that they should continue to observe the Sabbath or these Jewish feast days, and others don't. And in verse 6, we see that both of them are acting out of a faithful obedience, trying to obey their convictions that God has given to them. And so folks who are coming down on either side of these issues are acting with reference to the Lord. You notice how often that is repeated in this passage? To the Lord. That's actually the way the original says it. The one who observes, observes to the Lord. The one who eats, eats to the Lord. Our ESV translation, as in the words, in honor to the Lord, to kind of help us understand what Paul means here. Each of them, however, is giving thanks to the Lord. It's all done with reference to the Lord. Now, remember back to the beginning of the book of Romans. Back at the beginning, we got a description of what ungodliness, unrighteousness looks like. Romans 1, 21. You remember what he says there? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so that, that describes a non-Christian. They don't do anything for the honor of the Lord, and they don't do things with thanksgiving to the Lord. And so Paul says, listen, you might not agree with each other, but that's okay. It's evident that you're both Christians because you're acting out of a desire to honor and give thanks to the Lord. You should not break fellowship over these issues. Now, as I said, we know that there are some doctrines, there are some issues about which we can't agree to disagree. So, how do we distinguish between what sort of matters we should break fellowship over and what sort of fellowship uh, non-breaking issues there are? How do we distinguish between those two? 
as I said, this is going to require some careful thinking, some charity and maturity. Are you guys up to it? All right, so this is something that we talk about actually from time to time in our equipping classes. We talk about this in our equipping classes and we've even started talking about this in our new members class. It's the concept of theological triage. Theological triage. There's a Christian uh, theologian named Al Mohler who came up with this analogy about 20 years ago or so. You might be familiar with the concept of triage as it relates to medical care. So in a medical situation, you've got different people coming in and you need to figure out how to treat these different people. So you have to put them in order of which person's going to need the most urgent care. So if somebody comes in with a shotgun wound, you're going to need to get to them quickly. Somebody has a broken arm, maybe you can set them aside for a minute. If somebody has a scraped knee, you could put them even further apart. That's true in an emergency healthcare sort of situation, but that principle can help us theologically too. So we're trying to set up some categories. Let's try to think through those. We're trying to discuss how to rightly prioritize our differences in doctrine so that we can avoid that judgmental legalism by placing these doctrines in the correct categories. And these are the suggested categories. First-tier doctrines are essential to the gospel itself. You cannot get these doctrines wrong without losing the Christian faith altogether. These are non-negotiable. They are fundamental For example, the doctrine of the Trinity, the true humanity and deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, the virgin birth. If you deny these doctrines, well, now you've just actually denied the Christian faith. So these are rightly called gospel issues. Second-tier doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church to the degree that they tend to be the cause of separation at the level of local churches or denominations or ministries. So some issues, some doctrines are just less clear, they're less urgent, and Christians can disagree about these things, but if they're fully convinced, they would need to peacefully separate for the good of their own consciences. For example, there's different understandings of the concept of baptism. What is baptism? Who is it for? One Christian couple may be fully convinced and conscience-bound by Scripture that it would be disobedience to the Lord not to have their infant children baptized. Well, there's another Christian couple who is fully convinced and conscious bound by Scripture that it would be disobedient to the Lord if the church was not made up of baptized believers who've made a credible profession of faith. Both of those couples are Christians, but if they were fully convinced that they needed to act in accordance with their convictions and conscience on those matters, well, they would need to separate in order to allow for the freedom of their convictions. So another example is having female pastors. If someone was convinced that women should be pastors, they wouldn't be able to put that conviction into practice in a church in which there are uh, a conviction that there should only be qualified men who would be pastors. But to say that anyone who disagrees with you on any side of these issues is not a Christian, well, now you've elevated it to a first-tier issue. You've, you've made it central to the gospel itself. And so now you're starting to question their salvation because they disagree with you on an issue of conviction about these secondary issues. We don't want to go there. Third-tier doctrines are not important enough to be the basis of separation. The precise details of Christ's return, for example, 
should be able to go here. Uh, we all, of course, affirm the bodily return of Christ to judge the living and the dead as we confessed together in the Apostles' Creed this morning. But some will want to be able to say, well, I'm actually fully convinced that I'm able to discern more details about what that process looks like and what it entails. Well, we should be able to agree to disagree about that. These things would be less clear and less urgent. That's not to say it's not important, but it's not so important to our practice as Christians together in the life of the church that we would need to break fellowship over it. So eating meat or smoking or eating smoked meat, observing special days, <laughs> uh, having facial hair, these things we should be able to let each other be fully convinced about. And notice in verse 5 that you have an obligation, actually. You have an obligation to know what you believe and why you believe it. You need to be fully convinced. So if there's some of these issues that you're not sure about, you should study it. You should seek counsel. You should settle your convictions graciously draw your own conclusions on these issues, but don't draw dividing lines where they don't need to go. We don't need to install fault lines where they don't truly exist. Your list of what belongs in each category, friends, will not be exactly the same as every other person. And over the past few years, a lot of folks across the Christian landscape have recognized that their list is shuffling a little bit reevaluating where they need to be. And your, your, your list might have shifted too uh, over the last few years. And so how do we at Trinity Bible Church work towards gospel unity in light of these things? Well, we need to stand united in the first and second tier issues. This is why we have a statement of faith that is explicit on some of those first and second tier issues, but not on the third tier issues. We love and honor our Christian brothers and sisters who disagree with us in other faithful denominations or congregations, but to be obedient to the Lord and to our conscience as an act of obedience to the Lord, we have agreed as members to operate as a church in a certain way. You should expect to charitably disagree with other Christians here. Uh, this is a beautiful amount of a diversity that we see here across this congregation. Uh, we do not demand conformity in all things because we simply don't have that jurisdiction. Christ is the Lord of the conscience. And so when it comes to those third tier issues, do not harass other members about their views. That's clearly off base. You might be right, but that's not the point. Paul urges us to value relationships over winning arguments over these disputable opinions. And you might say, well, how, how, how can I interact then charitably? Well, the most effective way to help someone who might have a weaker conscience, who might need to mature, is to graciously make a biblical case and then entrust them to the ordinary means of grace. Be patient. Remember that you're not the Holy Spirit, and be okay with not forcing everyone to share your convictions about every little thing. And if I can just speak personally here for a minute, these are the hardest areas for me uh, as it relates to preaching. I know that folks like and appreciate very specific applications 
just give me a list of the things that I need to do. But the reality is that that's not, I, I don't think I should be doing that in every instance, every instance. We each are in different places to some degree, in different ages, different stages of maturity, different experiences, different backgrounds. And I really want to be careful not to bind the conscience of anyone in any unbiblical way or extra biblical way. My goal in preaching is to point to the clear principles in Scripture and then prayerfully rely on the Holy Spirit to do His work in us each, bringing conviction and assurance where it is needed for each of us individually. We can get along without agreeing on every point because Christ is the Lord of our conscience, and He has earned the right to judge us in all things. Point three, Jesus earned the right to reign over each of his people. Verse seven, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. It took me a long time to understand why Paul starts to introduce this concept of death and life here in the middle of this argument. It has seemed out of place to me, but it appears that there's a couple of things going on here. The first is that speaking of life and death in this way is encompassing all of our human experience. From beginning to end, from life to death, every aspect of human existence is done for the Christian in relation to the Lord. And there's great comfort in knowing that. There's great comfort in knowing that God providentially cares for every bit of our existence. It's true that there are confusing and puzzling things that happen in our lives and even in our deaths, but it helps us to remember that all our days are in his hand and nothing comes to us apart from his command. Our beloved brothers and sisters who have died in faith were not abandoned by Christ. His or her death is precious in the sight of the Lord, and he is with them even now. There's great comfort in knowing this. The first question of the New City Catechism, borrowing from the Heidelberg Catechism, is this. The question it asks, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see that truth here in verses 7 and 8? Our only hope in every aspect of our existence is that we belong to God in Christ. Now here's why Paul, I believe, is bringing this up. If Christ is Lord over everything, including our living and our dying, then he's Lord of your life today too. So if he's Lord of everything, he's Lord of even this particular moment and these minute issues of your conscience. And I take verse 9 to be explaining how Jesus earned the right to reign over us each in that way. So notice in verse 9 he says, For to this end, that is for this purpose, Christ died and returned to life, that he might be Lord both of the, living and, or of the dead and of the living. When we're tempted to think of ourselves as the Lord of our brother and sister, we're helped to remember who the actual Lord of all is. 
sometimes we forget the centrality of Christ in our relationships with one another. And it throws things off kilter. There's a mind-blowing concept here in verse 9 that is explained further in Philippians chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 1. And it's this. Jesus, as the God-man, became qualified to be Lord over all things through his incarnation, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and died a death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1, after making purification for sins, he ascended to his heavenly throne and sat down at the majesty, the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's the point. Why is Paul bringing this up? Here's the point. God doesn't merely shout commands from heaven as if he were a detached king. He practiced what he preached. God, in Christ, modeled the selfless humility that he is calling us to as Christians. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He considered the interests of his people as more significant than his own. He didn't despise them, didn't condemn them. He knows what it's like to live and to die, and he knows what it's like to return to life. There is no aspect over our existence that Christ hasn't entered into and redeemed in order that he might become the Lord over every possible inch and every possible moment of all places and all times. There is no single square inch over which Christ cannot declare mine. Lord, forgive us for overstepping our bounds so often and forgetting that truth. Presuming to stand over one another in condemnation over differing opinions. When we rightly recognize the majesty and the glory of the Lord who welcomes his brothers and sisters into his family at the price of his precious blood, uh, we should want to slink off of our man-made thrones and cover our mouths. That's the right response. This huge vision of Christ inspires that. Because God is the final judge to whom we are each accountable. We see this in the fourth section in verses 12, or 10 through 12. God is the final judge to whom we are each accountable. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul is drawing these Roman Christians' attention away from judging one another by reminding them that they will be judged by God. The one who eats vegetables, he says, why are you passing judgment on your brother or sister? Or the one who eats everything, why are you despising your brother or sister? Our Christian siblings will have to give an account for their own differing convictions 
about disputable matters to the Lord and not to you and not to me. The judgment seat uh, that the Roman culture would have been familiar with is kind of like the judgment seats that you've seen in the news or actually in real life. A raised platform where the judge would sit and pronounce judgments. The implication here is that anyone who condemns or despises his brother is going to have to give an account to that judge, that higher judge. If anyone requires his brother or sister to do something that is contrary to the Bible or something outside of God's word about faith and worship, well, then he should be prepared to explain that to God himself. We're reminded, of course, in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. Mark in chapter 7, Jesus declares all food clean. And so when the weak one in faith constrains the faithful obedience of others more than Jesus requires, he's in danger of adding to the gospel and subverting the lordship of Christ over his brother or sister's conscience. Paul cites Isaiah 45 as we've uh, alluded to earlier, even comes up again in Philippians 2. In that passage in Isaiah 45, the prophet Isaiah is explaining, as we see even in chapter 44, there is one God. There is one true God who is the God of all the earth. And in 45, he says, there is no other God and there is no other judge. There is no God, there is no other judge. And that's what he's quoting there and alluding to. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. There is no other judge. And so friends, if you don't know this God, if you don't know this king, let me invite you to bow your knee and to confess his lordship in your life now. It'll be easier now than later. Bob Dylan observed that you've got to serve somebody, and if it's not the one true living God, you will serve someone else, and it's going to be a poor substitute. Maybe you've submitted to the lordship of cultural pressures, Maybe you've submitted to the lordship of your own fickle heart. Maybe you've submitted to the lordship of the fear of man. To turn any aspect of the created world into your Lord is to engage in idolatry, as he reminds us in chapter 1. And none of those judges, as your Lord, will be able to save you. There is no other God besides the one living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Turn to him and be saved from that final judgment. That final judgment is the only one that will ultimately matter. Turn to Christ as your Lord. He's earned the right. Respond in faith. It seems that Paul was concerned that the, the disagreements that would have been happening in the, Catholic, or the, the Roman church would have led these genuine Christians who are coming down on different sides of these issues, it would have led them to question their salvation. If my brother and sister in faith is accusing me of not being a Christian, maybe they're right. Paul does not want that to happen. He's gone to great lengths to reassure people of their assurance of faith. You see most clearly in chapter 8. So he's reminding Christians here together, we are not meant to bruise one another's consciences. So, Can I just remind us who Jesus is here? Our righteous judge, to whom we will give an account, is also our righteous advocate. He is our defense attorney when the devil attacks our conscience, 
when the devil makes us wonder if we're truly a child of God. It is proper to Satan to despise and to condemn others. It is proper to Christ to intercede for his people on their behalf as a sympathetic high priest. So the invitation stands to each of us to ask him to be your advocate in that final judgment. So that when you stand before that judgment seat and God asks, why should I let you enter into my rest? You don't say, well, because I didn't eat meat. Or because I wore a suit to church. Or because I really embraced my Christian liberty with full assurance. But you say something like this, I'm only here at the gracious invitation of my merciful high priest and defense attorney. Please direct all questions to him. And you would be able to anticipate hearing your maker declare you not guilty, declare you innocent, declare you righteous, and invite you to enter into his rest. You aren't Lord over your Christian siblings. Jesus is. Friends, we are not given the prerogative to condemn those whom God has welcomed. None of us has a perfect view of every issue that we are able to enforce upon others, and so we should expect to have some areas of legitimate disagreement as we are pilgrimaging towards heaven together. But we should engage in those areas with humility as gracious, honorable Christians, because Christ alone has earned the right to act as the judge of each of his people. And he is the one to whom we will all be accountable. Let's pray.